Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey, everybody, and welcome, and happy Father's Day. This is Snark Monkey episode number 31. Brad Hall is my guest, and the only connection to this episode going up today and it being Father's Day when it's posted live uh, is that we're both fathers. That's about it. Uh, We do talk a little bit about sons in this episode, but otherwise it's mostly Brad's journey through show business which is a really fascinating one. And it's a bit of a companion piece to a previous conversation I had with Gary Kroger. Gary, Brad Hall, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Paul Barras all were part of the same theater company in Chicago, plucked out of the uh, comedy scene there and jammed into the new cast of Saturday Night Live in the early 80s, which around that time I was college age. I was obsessed with SNL. I watched every episode, so I was very familiar with this group and very familiar with Brad as he had the quite high-profile role of Weekend Update Anchor during his time there. A rocky time at SNL. We cover that. We cover his uh, whole creative career, including moving on after the following in the footsteps of such luminaries as Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Charles Rocket at that desk, to go on to become more of a behind-the-scenes guy in film and television with some acting here and there, and he's continuing to work to this day, and is the first one-on-one guest to actually perform a musical number live on the podcast. So yeah, we're breaking ground here at the Snark Monkey. It's a great conversation, and oh, uh, and we actually do address, briefly, the fact that he married one Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I don't get all Oprah on him and talk about, oh, what's it like having a showbiz marriage? But we talk about the relationship a little bit and also the fact that they did work together several times over the years. We also address the uh, rumor that Julia is some sort of billionaire heiress that has been floating around the Internet for years. Funny episode, insightful episode. He's very intelligent and gracious. And uh, you know what? He can carry a tune. So enjoy. This is a good one. Brad Hall, Snark Monkey number 31. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Again, I appreciate it. It is my great pleasure <laughs> to be here with you. Everybody wants to be the you. NPR DJ for a little while. Me. We all want to be you. Do you listen to the radio? I listen to the radio 24 hours a day, every day. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I'm you're, listening right now. So you're, you're, no. What songs? Uh, I, I, do, I listen to satellite radio now. Yeah. Uh, we I, lost you in the terrestrial world, huh? Kind of. I mean, I listen to, to down-to-earth radio when my, when my serious subscription runs out. <laughs> 
<laughs> you which it has. So on the way here, I was listening to the real radio. <laughs> <laughs> when you're forced to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with nothing else when, as it, an option. It's, it's, I've only listened when it's a demo. If my serious demo runs out, then I have to listen to you. But you, uh, you, we were just talking. You're uh, you're in a band. You've you've been in a band. You've uh, been yes. playing music. You brought your guitar. I actually, brought my guitar you're with the me. first Snark Monkey guest to actually perform That's, musically. I wanted to do one thing that was new. <laughs> you're innovating here. <laughs> I, I'm in. I'm in the Riff Master and the Rock Me Foundation, with the finest purveyors of garage band music. That's a great name. By it the way, it is a good name, isn't it? And it's been our name for thirty years or something. And and uh, we're a Chicago-based band, and none of us live in Chicago. How <laughs> <laughs> did that? Are so you the all gigs out here? are hard to get to. Oh, really? Uh, no, we're all over the place. And, and generally speaking, now when we play, which is rare, we play on New Year's Eve someplace. Oh wow! And so we've had a couple of really good New Year's Eves. But you kept the tradition alive. That's we great. Did. We've kept it. It's uh, yeah. It's the the guys. I was in this company, the Practical Theater Company, and. Um, one of the first things we did was start a rock and roll band to play our own parties. When you guys were doing the show, well, I'm going to kind of get through your whole history, but did you have music as part of your uh, your stage oh, yeah. show? Big part of our show. That was yeah. sort of the main separator for us. We, we shared a bar with Second City. Right. Um, you were right there literally on the same block, Literally right? next door. Yeah, I mean, we broke through the door, through the wall, and shared their bar, and they got all the bar money, and we got the $4 entrance fee. <laughs> Who is the smart businessman, you wonder? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we, um, we, we had a rock and roll band from the very, very beginning, and one of the first things that, that, that separated us from Second City was that we played rock and roll both on stage and off. So, so you were was, doing uh, was it was it integrated into the show? Was it yeah, comedy yeah. songs or parodies? Every, or? All of our shows would have a big opening number and a big closing uh-huh. number and several numbers in between. And because the casts were small on stage, it would usually just be me with a guitar or Rush Pearson with, with the guitar or Paul Barras with the guitar. Gary Kroger can't play anything, so he didn't. <laughs> Gary Kroger has he, no musical acumen he, whatsoever. He can sing. Is that what you're saying? Oh, really? Did, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gary's a great singer. And um, – <laughs> and Julia could sing, and so we, we we did a lot of of music. I would say not half the show, but there was a lot of music all the time, and musical fillers and things. And we had then then we sort of evolved, and later in the practical theater years, um, we had Steve Rashid, who's a spectacular jazz musician in Chicago, and actually has you t- look him up because he's got a great Thursday night jazz show in Chicago that, that is on YouTube, and it's really worth seeing live jazz. Um, every week, but he became our musical director after Larry Shanker had been our musical director, and so that was real music. And we started. He would he would accompany the show on piano and and keyboards, and we would have Rock and Ronnie Crawford would play the drums, and so we, we it was a real pit band there for wow. Depending upon the show, was was there a period of your life where you were thinking? I could go either a rock band or comedy. Well, we should have gone rock band. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's the truth. No. Uh, you know, we were good. Yeah, we, because uh, it's we were so much good. more stable. It's a much more, and, and, you know, the people that you meet are much more interesting intellectual people. <laughs> of course. And, uh, we, you know, we played, we, we, we had a world tour of Cleveland one year. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and, well, uh, at least so you we, hit the big market. We did. We played around. But, um, yeah, we, we often laugh and look back and say, God, why, why didn't we... Uh, pursue that harder because we were good we, we had a we had a christmas hit record semi-hit record that Whoa. means four people listened to it and uh what's called i've been good and uh right. yeah we're, so we were gonna look that up now uh, yeah you're gonna have to go find that one i actually am now i was gonna say i don't remember the music aspect of your of your uh, repertoire uh being showcased in snl but it was that you guys there was a a pretty great 
MTV band yes. that you guys did. It was the did. first MTV parody yes. <laughs> ever. It, yeah, that was it, called... And it's uh, pretty great. I mean, Look at a, our video, it was called. That's it. And I don't... I wrote that tune, but I, I, don't, I couldn't play it for you, but... Um, but it, I, if I, it, it basically contains, even was, at that point, early on, every single cliche immediately yeah. apparent in MTV videos. Look at our video, look at our video, video, video. I don't remember. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah that was the idea. I mean, it had... Um, it had and it had Ann B. Davis in it. At one point, the, that's right. It, it had the, the the band came up, and uh, Ann B. Davis, God rest her soul, yes, um, was in was in the middle of it. But yeah, that was pretty fun. That was Jim Belushi and and uh, yeah, and Kroger, yeah, yeah. and Kroger, yeah, yeah. and with Barry his, Nichols, with his limited who was a, musical acumen, yes, Barry Nichols, who was uh, on the staff, wasn't even on the show. He was in the band. Oh wow! <laughs> but what was great, I remember when we went in to record that. And I just written a you know a one four five rock and roll song as usual, and of course it was the SNL band. So the guys that played it were so unbelievably good <laughs> that and and laid it down like this. It was so fun. David Spinoza played the guitar on that. Bones Malone played horns. I mean, it was you know we it's had a really classy good. band. That's worth looking up. That was a yeah. that was a strong parody. Actually, yeah, it was a good sketch. Uh, you um, we talked about Second City and being next door in practical theater, and I know you went to Northwestern. We'll get to that. So, uh, but I immediately associate you as many people who come out of that scene. I associate you with the Midwest. But you were actually born in Southern California, right? I was, yeah. I was born in Santa Barbara. Did you grow up here? I did. My dad was an Episcopal priest. What? So I was very uh, holy. And uh, yeah, in a, Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, you had a church on the beach, and so I grew up surfing and stuff in Santa Barbara, and not realizing that I was the poor kid <laughs> until I went away. Oh, okay. And I, you know, then I went to school in Chicago. So that was quite Stuart, a. Tell me about growing thing. up. What'd your mom do? Just, uh, my mom w- worked for the Visiting Nurses Association. Wow. The, yeah. So you had yeah. very caring, loving, nurturing parents. And, and six brothers and sisters, and it was a big family and actually a very happy childhood. I was the lucky one that had a happy childhood. <laughs> I think I'm the only one. So you did. Yeah. No, I was great. You, so you didn't run away. Uh, you didn't feel restricted or or it wasn't strict you know, necessarily? No, and I probably felt put upon, but I wasn't. I mean, I yeah. thought, I, you know, look, all kids now, now that, that I'm a parent, yeah. I'm like, look, you've got it good. <laughs> I used to have to lick the road clean with my tongue. <laughs> Things but at least, changed. At least the weather was nice. When it you was were, great. Yeah. And, and little did I know, of course, wherever you grow up, you want you want to get the hell out. And so growing up, I'm like, I'm going to get out of this Santa Barbara, this oppressive. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, my God. Get me back to Santa Barbara. But man. So it, were you funny? Were you? No. No. I no, I've tried to be funny. Sure. Well, let me actually, with your father being a priest, was he kind of a, a big character yeah he was a big character so, it's all showbiz yeah and uh yeah he was a very beloved guy and he was 50 by the time i was born practically and so i know my parents weren't quite sure what my name was um because i was the sixth <laughs> child but you do yeah, lose he, track he, after you a while do. sure you do yeah i've only got two i don't know who they are but uh he was a great great guy and and all my friends were a little terrified of him probably because he he was an authority figure and he objected to bad language and but he was a very liberal thinking guy, okay. so uh, I was lucky. And the, the church was um, – he let me decide in seventh grade if I wanted to continue going to church, and I chose not to. So that was pretty – Well, that's pretty yeah. liberal, yeah. I mean, that is a pretty liberal thing. And my mom was always a liberal thinker, and so I, th- I had a great uh, – and stayed close to both of my parents. And my, my mom is still alive. So, so how did you gravitate? At what point did you recognize that you had 
the ability to be funny or make people laugh, or was well, it, it wasn't part so of your much adolescence? That. I mean, it was the I, I got interested in doing plays, and really young, I mean, sixth, seventh grade, around then, and um, and I'd always liked music and had always done music. And so then when I went off to Santa Barbara, actually, the schools we were really lucky. The schools were very heavily theatery. And um, so I did the plays in, in high school and then went to college to do plays. And so I would do anything. It didn't have to be funny. Yeah. Uh, but then the people that I ran into and the people that I became close to, we all gravitated towards being sort of funny. So it, it, Northwestern was the school you're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah. Which ha, uh, it has always had a reputation for being a great place for the arts, and yeah. especially in theater. Um, was I, that was it tough for you I, to get into? Or? No, I was. No. No. When I went to Northwestern, it's hard to get into now. But uh, when I went to Northwestern, anybody could walk in there. I, that was my impression anyway. But uh, and, and it did have this great – the only reason I went there, there was an actor in Santa Barbara called Bradford Dillman who was a really fantastic actor. And I was insane for his very beautiful daughter. And so I was over there one day. And he was kind of a local celebrity in Santa Barbara because he was in movies like Swarm and all these fabulous movies. And and he had a legit Broadway career and stuff. And we were all interested in the theater at the time. So he was a big deal. And he had acting classes and stuff. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was doing plays in Santa Maria and just kind of goofing around. And he very off the cuff, he says, you know, everybody I meet now goes to Northwestern University. So I thought, okay. <laughs> and I'm not kidding, because my girlfriend's father said, Northwestern's nice. The next thing I knew, like three months later, I was at Northwestern. So that was the amount of research you did <laughs> yeah, on your I'm secondary you, education. Things have changed in the way that people look at uh, their collegiate world. I, I remember, because uh, I've gone through it, and now my son has gone through it, and, and you and I are a similar era, but I applied to a grand total of three right. schools. Yeah, uh, my son applied to fourteen. Sure, because that was what you were supposed to do. Yeah, and I'm like, are you kidding me? No, that's the advent of the stupid internet. I mean, yeah. now you can apply anywhere you want, and it's yeah. you, don't, you don't have to do so many applications. But back then, when I was in high school, and that wasn't that long ago, four hundred years. But uh, <laughs> if you had, I think if you had a three one, if you had a B average, basically, you could go to a UC school. Right now, you have to kill somebody. But yeah, to go to a UC school. No, literally, so it's just the whole deal has changed. So yeah, much, it's so. it's crazy. And, you you know, I Northwestern's changed a lot too. When I, I mean, they had this great reputation. It wasn't that great when I was there. We had great teachers, but it was very unorganized. And the thing that was great was the students that it, that attracted by virtue of its stellar reputation. I don't think it was really that good a school at that particular moment. And I, I'll bet my professors would agree. It's fantastic now. Yeah. It's changed a lot. But it did the, have a great reputation. I yeah. went there uh, for the Cherub program, which right. I'm sure you were familiar with. Sure. I was there for the summer before my, my band. My used to play for the Cherubs. Oh, really? For the Cherub party. I was. <laughs> The Cherub Party. <laughs> we did. I was there in 1979, I guess. Right. Uh, summer of 79 in Chicago. I think we might have played that year. Uh, I, I'm trying to... Th- no, I think 81 was maybe our okay. first Cherub year. Or 80. Damn it. Oh, we might bad. Actually, we might have played really? that Really? You think so? I don't know. Uh, our, the band was extant, and we, we played a couple of years for the Oh, Cherub. my gosh. Did you do it for theater, or did you do it for... I did it for radio, TV, TV film. film. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had yeah. it all jammed. All three oh, yeah. jammed into one. Yeah. They still do. My kid is going to Northwestern next year, and he's in the radio TV film department. It's still the same thing. They still got radio on there, I think, is a real tip of the hat. (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody actually do that? (laughs) They have a a great Do do any of the students ask what that is? Yeah, they probably do. Oh, that's an ancient thing. I'm studying ancient history, too. Oh, you're in the radio department. Fantastic. That's near the Renaissance, right? Yeah. 
So so you get to Northwestern and uh, you start to kind of travel with this crowd. So you're a theater nerd, but right. it was highly accepted there. I mean, it was a, no, it was no. I mean, it was great, and we very quickly. In fact, my freshman roommate was Paul Barras, who with whom I started the practical theater, and with some other guys too. And um, we started that in college, so we went directly from college to doing the practical theater at the same time and then once we got out of college we continued to do to that's do one that. of the things that really struck me is i don't think i realized when talking to gary really how young you were when you got the practical theater company going yeah, but he's a liar oh. whatever if he said oh seriously because he said <laughs> no. you were 12 yeah, no, yeah. that's about it that's true is that right yeah, that's about right but but i i think about i can only compare it to my own experience and i, I was lucky that i actually got up and put pants on when i was 19 you know right. that, that i actually made it through the day accomplishing anything Right. But to have that impetus to actually take what you're doing in school and kind of immediately transfer it maybe, to maybe, the real world. Maybe it's because the the theater department was kind of crappy. I mean, we wanted to do better shows and we wanted to do more interesting stuff and experimental stuff. And we were writing plays. And, and so Paul and I were just like, well, where are we going to put this stuff on? Oh, I know. We'll just put it on. And so we did. And we actually, Northwestern gave us a little hut basically to put on our first show and then we started renting little spaces and then we got a tiny tiny um space on howard street which is the dividing line between evanston which back then was dry and chicago so it was where all the kids came to go to bars so it had a lot of traffic and people knew where howard street when we would say oh we're on howard street but it was a tiny theater it was a 42 seat theater and that's where we did our first mm, year or year maybe two years and then uh and then we opened a, the bigger place down by Second City, and then we went to Saturday Live right after that. So right. that was pretty quick. That was So that was uh, the the show that was basically competing with Second City, which had already, yeah, in a way. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Second City is a very popular institution, and they don't have any problem selling tickets. Right. So they were very happy to have their overflow go someplace where they could sell them drinks. Right. And, and Bernie Sollins, who ran Second City really almost from the very, very beginning, was one of our first big fans and supporters. And we had some business dealings with him later that weren't great, but he was also <laughs> always a huge supporter and a great guy. And uh, there were other Second City people, primarily Sheldon Patinkin. Do you know about Sheldon Patinkin? No. He, Sheldon Patinkin was the first guy that directed Second City after Paul Sills, who started Second City. Um, Sheldon was the first director. And you talk about young. I think he was an undergraduate at, at U- University of Chicago when he first started working with those guys. He was young, and he had been a real prodigy. Um, so Sheldon came up to Evanston. I don't know. No, I know what it was. I, I used to do a lot of plays in Chicago as an actor to make money to give to practical theater, kind of. You know, So I was like the ambassador. I'd go out and I'd do shows and meet the Chicago theater people and then say, hey, come and see our show. And so I was doing a play at the Saint, old St. Nicholas Theater where David Mamet started out. And Sheldon came to that show, and we got to be friends. And I said, oh, you should see what we're doing up at Practical Theater. We're doing improv, and that's your world. You're the Second City guy. So I said, oh, okay, I'll come up. So he came up and saw whatever show we were doing at the time and couldn't believe it. He's like, oh, boy, these guys are fun. So he became our guru, and he he'd never let us give, us, give him credit but he directed basically everything we did from then on. Really? He was the guy that sat in that little tiny theater and saw what we were doing. And he was our biggest supporter. His best friend is Bernie Sollins. Both these guys have passed away really recently. It's really sad. But big loss for Chicago and for the country and for comedy. But 
they were the guys that said, oh, you guys are going to be fine. Come on down. We can sell drinks. You can make a living doing this. And it doesn't matter that you're three years old. And so they were. that was really the the that was what made it so you had your champion you we really did and and i mean you guys were doing it as you said basically as an outlet for something that you couldn't do while you were at school so you were just looking for a place to to let's put on a show yeah exactly and we wanted to play some music and and and, just to have control over your own have control and we also wanted to do new plays because paul and i were playwrights but we also wanted to do bracked and do stuff that wasn't really getting done around chicago a lot and so we would do those in our little tiny theater and then we would do the comedy, which is what everybody really wanted to see, <laughs> in our bigger theater to pay for the little theater. And it well, worked out great. Actually, what I, I, it's interesting because I, you know, did you have this, you know, internal struggle of uh, I want to be a serious actor, but this other thing is kind of going no, yeah, better for c- me? Kind of. I mean, it wasn't going better. Ch- do you feel like I had to make a choice at some point? <clears throat> yeah, sometimes I did, actually, because, for example, I went to... Um, I, I did a play at, at the Goodman Theater, which is sort of the big time, and, and Gregory Mosier, who was running the theater then, was another huge supporter of practical theater. So it was valuable to go out and do these plays for practical theater because we'd meet directors and stuff, and then they'd become champions of, of the practical theater, and they'd come and hang out with us and party with us. really was a big part of it. But um, through him, I met some people from the Guthrie, and I auditioned for the Guthrie Theater, and... So it was a big decision. Oh, do I go up there? I won't be around practical theater for six months or whatever it was. But Paul was there and the theater was running. So off I went and had an incredible time it just as an actor at the at the Guthrie Theater. Well, at the end of that um, shows that I was hired for, they offered me a contract for the year. And my dream had always been to be a theater actor and to act in lots of plays and at a place like the Guthrie Theater, which at the time was the leading theater in America. And... It was a great the, – the artistic director was great. The directors I was working with was great. I had great parts for the rest of the season, and that was a big decision. So, God, do I go back? And luckily, right around then, I'd met Julia. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to go back because I really wanted to be near Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who later became my wife, but at the time was my girlfriend. And I was flying back and forth. And it was really hard to do. I thought, ah, screw it. I'll just go back to Chicago and I can be with her all the time. So it was love that put it you was in. It was love. It was love. And then the next show we did – no, nah, not the next show, but soon thereafter – we did the show that got us hired at, at Saturday Night Live. So. Yeah. Gary talks about that experience of you guys. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big switch to, to be flipped. Yeah. Uh, you're doing your show. Admittedly, it's getting attention. It's getting crowds. It's getting reviews. Right. Um, it's going – you're enjoying it. Yeah. You're having fun. Oh, by the way, you're going to go uh, be the new cast of this show that probably at that point had, had immediately – burrowed itself into the zeitgeist yeah uh, pardon the you know, terrible word we didn't know the show that well because we were doing a late show on saturdays so we didn't have the op- you know nobody was taping shows then so we really didn't have the opportunity to see it oh, we, we, we kind of knew it we yeah. really knew it from high school right you know, we'd all, the, the, the earliest the years, years right. yeah, we really knew that and we and maybe maybe we, we knew who eddie murphy was because he was becoming a huge star and, and we knew Tim Kazarinski because he was from Chicago right. and Mary Gross was from Chicago. But so you hadn't seen that transition we with, really with all the, 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 nah. the new producer. We didn't even yeah. – I wouldn't have even known. If you'd asked me, I would have said, yeah, kind of. I guess that's still on. We didn't know because we were theater guys. I mean, we really were. We were late night guys. That was really the problem. We would have been happy. I don't think we had a TV, but we would have been happy to watch <laughs> it if we could afford to have bought a TV. But we were busy, man. We were not – that was not our world. 
And so that did not serve us well when we got the job. <laughs> and, you know, Kroger, from Kroger's point of view, oh, it was a party because it's like, oh, I'm an actor. I've been hired. But for, for me and for Paul, it was quite different because we had a company. We had people relying on us. Right. We had two theaters. We had people that were trying to make a living. We had plans for this company. And so it was a big decision. Right. I, mean, I think it was a snap for, for Julia and for Kroger to go to New York. It was a no-brainer. But for me and Paul, that was a hard decision, and and we were counseled by those same guys, Bernie Sollins and Sheldon Patinkin. They said this comes around once in a lifetime. You yeah. kidding? You got to go, and you know it did. It did hurt the growth of the company in some ways, but we got over that pretty quickly, and and and, <laughs> and, the, and the and the theater did fine. Um, but it was complicated, and we were young. I mean, I think I was. 23 or 4, maybe something. Well, that's the other thing is that it's it's certainly you knew it had a pedigree because you had you had watched it in its original incarnation. And you knew it was a great opportunity, but it was it was a move for a young person to a city you had not been in, even though you'd lived in Chicago. And from I would imagine the moment go. It was an entirely different process than you had ever been through before. Oh, yeah. On and, paper, it seems like the same thing. Hey, we're going to write sketches and we're going to put so them on. It's so different. I'm yeah. sure Gary told you. But, and you know, I, God knows I would never complain because that was such a great opportunity and uh, it changed all our lives. But the way the show was run was nuts. It was stupid. It just wasn't run well. And um, they didn't know how to take advantage of any of the talents that anybody had. We didn't get the opportunity to do anything that we were good at. And so it was a disappointment in a lot of ways. It was fun um, on Saturdays. It was always fun. To to actually go up and do the show. Yeah. The week was not necessarily very fun because it was just so inefficient. And, and, you know, we we were young, but we put on shows. So we knew how to write and we knew how to be funny. And then when you know those things, you're not allowed to do them. That was really, really fun. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't Lauren at the time. <clears throat> at the time, it was Ebersol, yeah. Dick Ebersol, who had come from a completely different kind of background and yeah. was good at producing shows, but was not a comedy guy. No. And so th- if anything trickles down from the creative standpoint at the at the at the head of things, you were relying on, you know, other people to kind of ma- was, or people who didn't have that acumen to make well, it that was decision. An institution, you know, yeah. I, it was let's see, it was 10 years old ish. And and the show and it was it was an institution already. We got there. Eddie Murphy became a gigantic right. star. His first movie opened right away, practically after we got there. So he became a huge star. So the show became a lot about servicing him, right? Servicing Joe Piscopo, who at the time was a big, big, big name. And nothing wrong with those guys. And Eddie Murphy was incredibly welcoming and incredibly nice to us. We had very similar musical taste. And so we we talked a lot about music and stuff. And, and um, What music did you and Eddie? Well, believe it or not, he had very uh, kind of, you know, we, we both liked Motown. We both liked the Beatles. He had sort of standard, um, not even standard, he had good FM taste. Yeah, okay. Uh, I would say is what <laughs> he right, had. All right. And um, that's... Yeah, and I, th- I think it's sort of the era of music. I was maybe two years older than Eddie, or something like that. And he, we just so we had the same cultural sort yeah. of upbringing. But and I never, I wrote for Eddie a lot. <laughs> he did not need me to write for him, <laughs> so that was ridiculous. But I liked him, and his stuff got on the air. But we didn't know sort of the politics of the place. We didn't know how to serve ourselves. The first thing I said, this shows how out of it I was. The first thing I said was. None of these repeating characters. Why do, why do you want to repeat characters? 
I'm not going to do any of that. <laughs> Which the whole show is built it's upon. It's the entire way to become uh, a Trying star to that find show. that. Exactly. But the institution didn't service the people there. And I think that not just us, but even Eddie and even uh, – but lots of the writers were really good. I mean, Robin Duke – who, you know, Robin Duke is really funny. Yeah, she's come from Robin, SCTV. She and, comes from, yeah. yeah, and if you see Robin Duke on stage or you see Robin Duke outside of the Saturday Night Live thing, you go, wow, Robin Duke is hilarious. Well, she never got a chance to be funny right. for one second on that right. show. And my wife, God, she was in three sketches some years. You know, it's just like, well, how about using her? She's pretty damn funny, as people found out later. So I think it wasn't structured in a way to discover what people were good at. It was big. Uh, it was awkward. And, you know, when we got there, it got very popular. It, Saturday Night Live had had a real dip in the ratings, mm-hmm. which we didn't, I didn't even know what a rating was. But <laughs> when we got there, it got a lot more popular that first sort of year and a half, and then it kind of tailed off again. But but it was very popular riding the wave of Eddie primarily. And you were given the prime opportunity at the update desk. Yeah. Did you have any Hugely comfort frustrating. level? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was great. I loved doing that. It was fantastic. But, uh, but, <laughs> And this is what you look back, you go, oh, man, if they'd only, you know, life happens exactly as it happens. But one of the first things I said was, well, wait a second. What about if we just sort of like do parodies of the news? I was thinking more along the lines of what uh, of of what John Stewart does Mm -hmm. now. Take real news and cover it from a Saturday Night Live perspective. That's what I thought would be funny. In fact, I, I said, well, why don't I not do sketches? I'll go out and we'll do actual news. So if there's. There's plenty of news in New York. I'll just go out. If there's a fire, I'll go to the fire. Well, fire is probably a bad example. But if there's, <laughs> you know, if there's a debate, I'll go to the no, debate. No, because fire stuff is hilarious. It's always hilarious. It's burning <laughs> people. But, but, you know, they, and they, they were like, no, 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 no. They let me do one or two things that were remotes like that, but very, very little. And, and there was a guy called Herb Sargent who was a great guy. I loved Herb Sargent. And another guy, very funny guy, maybe not used right, but he'd been writing the news for years. And I found out lots of things about the way other SNL anchor guys had dealt with him over the years. But when I was there, I was he's an older guy. I was very respectful. I was brought up in a way that you do what you're told. You right, know, so right. I was the wrong guy probably at that moment. <laughs> but he had this idea that people tuned in to really get their news. And I kept saying, no, we're a comedy variety program. <laughs> we're not actually doing the news. So I would – this is how crazy it was. There's a, there's a, um, a dress rehearsal at 830 with a full audience. So we come in. And there'd be new stuff that, that Herb had worked on during the week and a couple things that I would have written during the week and other cast members and writers had written during the week. And at 8.30, we'd run it dress. So there, there's a Chiron screen next to me, so I don't know what the image is, but I've had a chance to rehearse and see the images and stuff, and so I would do that at 8.30. Fine, it would go well or it wouldn't go well, whatever. And then there would be edits and things before the live show in, of the rest of the show. So a sketch might be cut or some words might be changed. On the news, <laughs> I'm not kidding. This would happen nearly every week. I'd sit down at, 11, at at midnight, which was the time that the news would come on. I'd be handed the stack of news stories, and I would look at the first news story, and it would be completely unfamiliar. I would never have seen it before. <laughs> and then I would go through, I would do the news, and I would never know what any – there would be nothing there that had been there at 8.30. Literally Nothing. And the stuff that I'd written, gone. The stuff that Eddie Murphy had written, gone. All these writers, all gone. 
what the heck is this stuff? And so, and I wouldn't know what the picture was. So I would have to guess, you know, this morning Ronald Reagan had his hand stuck to his head. I'd have to figure out, is it hand that's funny or head? I've not seen the picture. So I just sort of guess. And wow. that, that we, And so then the, the next week I'd go back and I'd say, hey, Herb, you know, maybe we could get some. You know, I mean, I, I, you nuts. hear of stuff even now getting cut from dress to yeah. whatever or orders of things changing. That's crazy enough. But to literally just I, you give talk you about brand live, new. I was live action, baby. <laughs> I had no idea. And it was really, really frustrating, yeah. really frustrating. And, and, and it was nuts. It's the crazy way to do it. But by the same token, it's live. There's an audience there. They're laughing. It's fun. Yeah. So you, you sort of go, well, we'll take the good with the bad. But that was an insane way to do it. How, you were there how many seasons? I was there from 82 to 85. All right. So, yeah. so but uh, you um, – now you – and Julia and Gary and Paul right. had all been hired, basically, yeah, literally just yeah. picked up out of the practical theater company and dropped in That's there. right, yeah. So you and Paul were shown the door. I, uh, Paul left after one year. One year. I left after two. Two. And uh, Julian and Gary stayed for a third year. Now, if you are to, and you have warned me not to do this, but if you are to believe Gary Kroger, right. he maintains that he was... Um, also going to be shown the door around the time as first you. year, yeah. no, first, oh, year. first year, but yeah. that you went in and said to Ebersol, you're, you're missing out this guy. Yeah. You're not using him right. I mean, you, the, all the things you just expressed, you actually went in and you kind of backed up your friend. Yeah, on that. I did. I, I did that a lot for, <laughs> <laughs> you've I been doing that all your life. Time. All you your know, life but, you with know, Kroger, you've been was, saying that. No, not just Kroger, but yeah, we, <laughs> oh. we came in as a unit. Yeah. And Paul, uh, who was, you know, a major part of the unit, had been promised a lot of things that didn't come true. And so he was very happy to not. Was do, he supposed do, to be a performer as well? He was supposed to be. A f- now they have these feature performers. Feature, yeah. And I think that that's, I don't remember the exact deal. God, it was a long time ago. But that was basically what they told him. They said, look, you're not going to be part of the regular cast right away, but you're going to be in sketches. And in fact, in our first show, he is in a sketch. But they cut it down and cut it down and cut it down. Mm-hmm. So that it was a sketch we had done on stage for years. Um, and they cut his role to for time and and. But, you know, Paul and I had run that theater company. So we were, I don't, I don't know, we weren't exactly arrogant, but we had been the boss. So we knew exactly what we thought was good and stuff. So all of a sudden we weren't the boss at Saturday Night Live. And although that was fine, we knew we weren't the boss. And God knows we'd worked for other people before and we know how to work with people. But in this situation with Dick, man, did we have friction. So at the end of the first year... Um, yeah, they were uh, they were trying to fire Gary, and I said, you know, this is ridiculous. You don't want to fire this guy; he's hilarious, and and they didn't, which was great. <laughs> he could have done that for me the next year, but yeah, yeah. I, oh, I he think said the, he did that too. But oh, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty well, sure that was a lie. But my my friction with those guys was not was more writing stuff. I right. I, I had written a lot of sketches and. You know, I wanted a different credit. You know, how that all that stuff goes. So that that, and I was also thrilled to go back to Chicago too. So Paul and I were happy to get back to. So work. yeah, so you've got a little bit of again, uh, 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 you're torn a little bit because you're relieved of this duty, which was not what you wanted it to be. Right. But at the same time, what was your relationship with Julia like at that point? Were, um, well, we'd been living together for yeah. a long time anyway. So yeah. was there any tension there? No, but, I mean. I mean, she yeah. wasn't having a good time either. She's been very vocal no, about she, saying she that was really not wasn't. a pleasant experience for she her. She was not having a good time. But, you know, it was, we were young, and it didn't. It, 
it's just not the way we were operating. I wasn't even that mad at the people at Saturday Night Live. It, it didn't really work. It's funny, you know. You, you, for one thing, you don't get fired from something like that. Right. You just don't get rehired. Yeah, you you're, just you're rehired don't. at the end of every year. <laughs> I think it's still so, like that too. People is. never really know. Yeah. Did I get the job? And then yeah. did I lose my job? But I mean, if you talk to Janine Garofalo or a lot of people that did Saturday Night Live for a brief time, they'll all go, you know, in the end, it was probably better that I left, <laughs> right? Because you don't want to explode. And and I had some real friction with some of those guys. But but and I'm an easygoing person. So for me to be having friction, something's going on. But um, but for as far as Julia went, I was thrilled that she was there. She she was an actress. She wasn't riding on the show. She, that's what she wanted to do, and it was great. And I would go to the shows, and so it wasn't that yeah. awkward. And and you know, and I've been back a lot since. But but um, yeah, I mean, I just we just we just carried on. Basically. So back in Chicago, what did you kind of pick pick up where you left off? Kind well, of? we did kind of. I mean, I stayed because I was living with Julia. I stayed in New York a lot too, and I don't remember what I did the very next. Year I wrote a couple of movies. I, I had started writing uh, stuff, and so I wrote a couple of movies, and and we came to L.A. to to sell movies and stuff, and sort of moved in that general direction. Although I was still doing plays, because I for me as an actor, and I I'm still an actor, but I don't really, I never really love, love, loved acting on television. Um, although Saturday Night Live might have been the perfect thing for me in a way, because there was an audience, and it was kind of like. Um, doing a live uh, theater, like yeah. doing theater, sort of closer than it even a sitcom is, but um, but I so I, I went back to doing plays and I did a few plays and then Julie and I both because Julie and Gary only stayed one more year too and then they were not picked up or whatever you call it <laughs> and uh, so we all wound up in L A pretty quickly. I stayed in New York and did a play at Lincoln Center the in the, the following after the year after Julia stopped and we had an apartment in New York and we loved living in New York, but then. My uh, being a writer, I was selling movies and stuff, so I, I kept having to be in L.A. all the time. And so we decided, oh, well, let's try Los Angeles for a year and see what happens. And so we came out to, um, together, and she got a pilot that year um, on NBC. And th- by pure coincidence, the pilot that she did was um, produced by Gary Goldberg, who within a year after that became my partner. So we we just and that was total coincidence. Um, so we we started a happy life in in Los Angeles. Yeah, you start and you continued to work fairly regularly, mostly behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, it did, did again? Did you kind of make that? choice at some point to not be as prevalent well, in the in the acting world or yeah, did it just yeah. turn out that way well as soon as we had kids right. um we sort of somebody had to be home kind of and so we try not to be in production at the exact same time and again i was more interested in theater i think if we'd stayed in new york then we might have flipped and i might have been more of an actor and and you know she might have been home more i'm not really sure but um and now that our kids are going off to college, maybe I'll go back to doing plays. But I, I, and, and once in a while, I still do plays. But um, at that time, I was really just having a good time writing TV. And it was very the, – the, the, I had written some movies and acted in a couple of movies. And around, I don't know, this sort of maybe four or five years after Saturday Night Live, I was doing a movie that I had written and that I was also in. And we were down in, in Virginia Beach shooting it. And the financing fell apart right in the middle of the movie. And it was incredibly frustrating. <laughs> and the, 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 the director of photography took all the prints, all the, the negatives, and put them in his hotel room and locked the door. It's like, oh, we'll get paid. or No one will ever see this. We'll never see the light of day. And the movie actually never did see the light of day. And oh, every, no. everybody has one of those horror stories. But it was a pitiful moment for me. 
because I was so furious because I'd worked for so long on this movie. It took so long to get it made, and, and then we were. We were getting it made, and, and, it, and it all fell apart. And so I was having dinner with some people, and this Gary Goldberg was, was at the dinner party, and, and he said, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I just came back from Virginia Beach, and it was the most horrible experience of my life. <laughs> and he laughed and said, what you need in your life is TV. And I said, oh, no. I did TV. I did Saturday Night Live, and that wasn't so great either. And he said, well, you might want to try this. And I just wrote this pilot, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I, you know, I've got an appointment at 10 o'clock. Is it 11 o'clock? Be at Paramount. And so at 11 o'clock, I go to Paramount, and there's Gary. And he says, oh, this is the show we're doing, So I, this pilot. So I read the pilot. It was a really interesting show. And uh, he said, you want to rewrite it with me? This guy didn't know me at all. And, and I said, <laughs> really? And he said, yeah, you're a writer, right? And I said, well, okay. <laughs> you're a writer, and, right? And, and I, I said, well, yeah. <laughs> So we sat down in his office and we wrote we wrote this pilot, and it was a ton of fun, and be, mostly because he was such a great guy. And so I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And he says, oh, well, we're going to do a read through, so stay for the read through. So okay, so they do a read through, and that was fun. And Carol Kane was in it, and she was hilarious, and Jeff Tambor was in it, and he was hilarious. Like God, this is fun. And then he says, we're shooting tomorrow, <laughs> and I thought, tomorrow, this is the greatest business in the world. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And so I said, okay, I'll come. So This is the worst indoctrination yeah. into, into know, it's scripted like, It's like sliding in. It's like it was so lucky. Because it's all going to be like this it's for the rest great. of my career. Yeah. And so then and, – and sure enough, uh, it was a show called American Dreamer, which no one could possibly remember because it was an NBC show. And this is how many comedies were on NBC at the time. It was on at 1030 on Saturday nights. 1030 p.m. <laughs> What? <laughs> Saturday night. There was a, they had a half-hour comedy starring Bob Urich, Carol Kane, Jeff Tambor, Johnny Galecki. I am racking my brain. You will not remember it. No. no. It lasted two years. And, um, and it was actually a very nice show. It had some very theatrical elements to it, which was, and Susan Seeger had, had written the original pilot. She was fantastic. She ran the show, and she was great. And so I met all these guys that, that I was in a comedy room for the first time. At SNL, we didn't do that. We didn't have a room, which, was, which is ridiculous. You got all these funny people. And you don't do a room, but but you know, or even do a small room. I like really small rooms. But, <laughs> How small but, do you yeah. like them? <laughs> so we did that show, and then after that, um, Goldberg says to me, he "Goes, hey, you know, let's do uh, let's do a show about my youth." And I'm like, oh, well, oh God, he's maybe ten years. He's passed away too. God bless him. But um, but he's maybe ten years or twelve years, something like that, older than I am. And and he grew up in Brooklyn, and he wanted to do a show that takes place in the fifties in Brooklyn. I thought, well, that's the craziest idea. Who's going to watch that thing? <laughs> and but but he always told these great stories about his youth, and so oh, okay, let's do that. Sounds great. Why not? And I like baseball. We'll put the Dodgers in it. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> the Brooklyn Dodgers, because I don't like the L.A. Dodgers. But and so next thing we know, we've got this pilot and. Boom! That shot. I thought this is the greatest business. <laughs> I can't we, believe it. What was the the show? Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, and, which was a great, great, excellent, show. and excellent probably show. my favorite show business experience because the show was super high quality. We were completely in control. It was uh, at a, at a time in television when. Um, it's sort of the beginning of the golden age of television when people really started to care about quality in television. And, you know, his life is a really fun life. We had a great cast. He's the greatest guy in the world. And 
it was just really, really a beautiful experience. And, and so th- that's when I realized, okay, this is this feels a lot like the theater. Because one of the great things about the theater is when you do a show, it's a family. And you really feel close mm-hmm. and you have that sort of experience that can't be replicated. And I, I thought that part of that was because it's not filmed. that You don't ever have to look at it again and it's done and it's like a memory. It's just, it's just a ghost. And I, that's very appealing to me. I love that idea of like, okay, we all shared this thing and now it's gone. But oh, we really? can look at each other and we can feel it. Whereas when you make a movie, it's like, oh, God, it's really hard. And you have that feeling kind of. And then you look at the movie and, oh, God, it wasn't that good. <laughs> and then you have to keep looking yeah, at that and, and then you turn and on the over. TV and it's on. It's like, wow, it really wasn't that good. <laughs> That's, but, but, I, that's actually interesting, Brad, because I had never thought of it that way. Because TV, you, you are moving so fast. You don't really have time to go back and revisit, re-edit. You, yeah. don't, you don't get it in front of test audiences to see how they respond. And then, pilots you do, unfortunately. Well, but, pilots, yeah. 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 But, but, but the rest of it's very But once quick. you get rolling, it's, yeah. it's like here, it, it, we, we created it. We put it out there. We got to move on to the yeah. next one. And in fact, in that, in the Brooklyn Bridge situation, it was so, it was so much our sort of world. And Gary had two junior high school friends, and me. And that was really there were some other people that that, that wrote on it for here and there, but but primarily it was those guys who would just talk about their experiences. And then and Gary would talk about his experiences, and then I would go off and try to live in that world and write it up, usually with Gary, and which was incredibly fun. And a lot of the time was just spent very intensely in his office just trying to get something to shoot the next day or the next hour even. Sometimes we'd get so far behind. So when we knew the show was in some trouble ratings-wise, but because Gary had been such a huge success in the television industry, he'd insisted that they do not give him notes, neither Paramount nor CBS. It was on CBS. So we didn't get any notes. So we were really in a in a vacuum. So you talk about a ridiculously fabulous experience. But one day we're in his office trying to rewrite, killing ourselves to rewrite some scene. And his assistant walks into the room with a very long face. And she says, guys, I'm really sorry, but I just got a call from CBS and the show has been canceled. And Gary looked up and said, who's CBS? <laughs> and I thought... Yeah, that's maybe not the best guy to have as your mentor, because that's not the attitude you should probably have. Hmm. But still, to have that experience, I oh, mean, it was great. I mean, yeah. you're a little spoiled from that standpoint because you Completely. probably never had anything quite like that again. Not even marginally close. <laughs> I mean, not even in that universe. It was great. It yeah. was great. But, you know, those kinds of shows are, are everywhere now. I mean, that we really cared about the look. We cared about the music. We was that cared a single about, camera show? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that, that was not being done a lot. Well, I, I, it, was being, it was becoming more and more popular. This was sort of, you know, mid-'90s. but So it was becoming more popular. But And then things, you know, swing back and forth. Sure. And I don't think they'll ever really swing back to audience shows ever again really because they're just they're they're difficult to do and people right. just don't want to do them but, right um but you know there's always one or two cbs will always as long as there's a cbs <laughs> and a chuck lorry there will be <laughs> three uh, multi-cameras yeah. that comes in front of live audiences but you look now i mean there's just no there's no there's so, so many places to do comedy in so many different ways which is really beautiful but there's not that kind of focus the one good thing about three networks pre back back in the day, you know, is that you really could get a lot of focus on a show and the whole country would watch it. And now I think it's kind of becoming that again because of binge watching and there's so many right. delivery systems and and certain shows do catch the zeitgeist. Um, but you're not getting 25 million people watching right. the show. Right. Well, that's that's I mean that leads me to. Um 
you know, one of your most high-profile projects, which it was part of must-see TV on Thursday night. Right. You were nestled there, you know, between, what was it, Friends and Seinfeld? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the Single Guy. Yeah, yeah. Which is your show. Yeah. And that, I mean, if if that show was getting those ratings now, oh, it's you'd be a freaking juggernaut. Oh, yeah. I mean, even at the time, the, the, the show, well, you know. I, I, it was a good show, by the way. This yeah, is, the, uh, well, the first year was good. The second year wasn't good, but that's all right. Um, but it started out very, very strong. But that's another That's thing. right. It did morph it, quite oh, a bit, it got didn't it? it so noted to death, it just got killed. Is that what but, it was? Oh, yeah. It was It was the anti-friends, conscientiously. Right. Because, um, you know, it was about the last single guy in a group of friends. And so, uh, and 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 it also tended to be unlike Seinfeld. Um, it tended to have one story rather than right. a bunch of different stories. And Seinfeld got more and more um, sort of cut up that way. But they would be telling nine different stories by, by the end of <laughs> right, the time. Right. But at that in that particular era, they usually had you know each character would have a story, and we were trying to tell more sort of one story and stay away from Friends and. Seinfeld, and I think we we were pretty. I mean, the show actually was really well received at first, which people don't necessarily remember, but I certainly do. And um, and it did have a good cast, and it, it, it had very funny um, people on it. Yeah, we and, had, uh, well, let's talk about. It. Uh, I'm going to have to look it up on Jonathan uh, Silverman. Uh, yes, Jonathan was Evan, definitely on. It. Evan Handler. No, uh, keep no. guessing. Uh, um, oh, shoot, uh, Ming Na uh, Win. Ming Na, who I just saw the other night. She was fabulous. Um, yeah, I'm going to actually look it up because I, got, I don't want to say it and then forget somebody. <laughs> You're looking up. The I'm looking at my own, own show. show. Yeah, because what you if I forget somebody? You were involved in it, right? If I forget somebody, then I'll feel like an ass. But you were part of it, correct? I think I made it up. You showed up for it. But the second year, what they what was hilarious was they were like, "We need more single people," and I said, "Really? It's about one single guy." And so they wanted to add. They added a single girl and another single guy. And at that's that point, right. I was like, yeah, "Okay, that's just not very that's smart." That's right. But um, and and so you know. I remember being so satisfied with that that first year. Like there, it was one of those things that was. I want to continue to watch these people, right? Yeah. And then by the time, and, and it was getting that reaction it, all it around. Was a, it was a weird thing because you know the and I I really I wish I'd been in the in the meetings. I was just the victim of them, but the. Uh, <laughs> It got caught a little bit. There was a lot of politics. There were certain presidents of networks that left and went to other networks and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the, the internal politics of these things really cannot be overemphasized. Yeah. It is insane. And stuff you have zero control Nothing. over. Nothing. Yeah. But, and, the, and the poor people, the guys I feel really sorry for are the sort of not the, not the, the person that they send to give the notes. Because that all that person is doing is trying to guess what the president of the network would say if the president of the network <laughs> happened right. to be there that day. <laughs> That's right. And so the, it's constant second guessing. They never say what they're thinking. Right. So we would have a note session. The worst of this was we had we had this one note session, and um, there's like, oh, you know, you got to do this and you got to do that, blah blah blah. And it's like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll we'll try to do that. And then this particular executive got in her car and she called from the car and she says, you know what? Never mind. That, that's a bad note. Oh, okay, so we won't do it. And called again. No, you better do it. Clearly, just thinking, well, what's the president of the network going to think? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we we would pre-shoot some things. It was an audience show, but we would pre-shoot stuff on, on th- Wednesday and Thursday sometimes. And obviously the network knows when you're, when you're pre-shooting. So the particular scene that she'd gone back and forth with the notes six or seven times that night into the deep into the night, she was still sending notes. 
and the reason I wanted to get the notes was because that scene was one that we were shooting the next day. So it would be in the can, and we would just play it for the audience to get the laughs. Because right. we, we, we really did use real laughs. So, so the next day, we shoot the version of it that incorporates the notes as best we could. Um, we shoot it, and we cut it. And then Thursday, I get more notes. And I said, really? That's going to be hard because we have shot that particular scene, but that's how nuts – that's how completely insane and and the 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 micromanaging of it was just nuts. So anyway, I'm going to tell you now who was so great. Okay, I didn't want to. I, I had just tell me off the top of your head, head, Brad. Uh, well, you know, but here, here's one of the great things about the show. Ernie Borgnine played. Yes, play, yeah. he was he, the doorman. He was the doorman. And oh. Ernie Borgnine was the greatest guy ever. The most enthusiastic supporter of that show, oh, my God. He wow. loved every second. He would come in early. He would sit on the set and watch everybody else and just laugh hilariously. Oh. He was it the greatest guy in the world. It seems to me like he would be exactly why, what I would want him to be on the set. Like, he'd tell you a story if you wanted one. He'd, he'd just, He's that guy. Yeah. He would tell you stories forever if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. And what was great was one day he says to me, he goes, Brad, I'm going to bring something in tomorrow that you're going to want to see. And it's something that's really special to me. And I really want you to see it. And so, of course, I figure, oh, it's his Academy Award, which he won sure. for Marty. And I knew the whole story of because um, uh, what's her name? Um, the, the princess, uh, uh, Grace Kelly, right. had uh, had been the presenter for him. So I knew the whole story. I thought, oh, God, it's going to be so great. I'm going to hold his Academy Award. He's going to tell me about the whole story, how he got it. Da, da, da. So I'm, I'm ready. And I'm on the set. And he comes in the next day. And he kind of looks, looks at me and gives me a wink like, in just a minute, I'm going to show you. I got and it. And so it's like, great. He goes, he goes, come over here. He gives me a little finger. Come on over. And I come over. He goes, let's go to my dressing room. i got something to show you. So, oh, great. Okay. So off we go to Ernie's dressing room. We come in, and he hands me a huge, um, like, a photo album. I'm like, oh, he's got a whole – it's going to be every shot from the night. It's going to be when he arrived, putting on his tux, who's he with. You know, I, don't, I don't remember. You're still in Oscar I'm world. completely in Oscar world. Yes. And, uh, and then and – then, he says, well, go ahead, open it up. And so I open it up, and it is, I'm not kidding, pictures of his RV. <laughs> he loved his RV. He had like an RV bus. I'm like, Ernie, this is the most moving picture of a bus. And he loved that thing. And then he starts telling a story of how he and his son took that bus and drove Route 66. And, of course, I'm in tears because it was a great story. It was an it was, awesome it story. It was much better than the Way Academy Way more Award. moving than a freaking piece of metal that he and, got. And then he laughed and said, I'll bring the Academy Award in tomorrow. <laughs> he, he knew. So you had Ernie, you had Ming-Na, you had Jonathan Silverman, great guy, hilarious guy. And you had Joey Slotnick, who oh, is still, yes. to me, the funniest man in the world. Joey Slotnick is unbelievable. Oh, that's right. We did a bit and on the show that the... <laughs> Joey Slotnick was so great. There was he was trying to learn tennis because he was trying to pick up a girl or something. And and Ernie Borgnine says, "No, no, that's not how you swing a racket." And he tries to help him swing a racket, and they swing the racket together, and the racket goes flying out the window. Right, and then we cut to the street, and the and the racket bounces on the street, and then a steamroller <laughs> happens to be on the street and rolls over the uh, the racket, and the racket is squished on the street. Right, and then we cut back up into the apartment and Joey Slotnick says what are the chances of that outside of a cartoon <laughs> <laughs> oh god he was great and then we had uh, Jessica Hecht you know Jessica Hecht yeah. Jessica Hecht is one of America's best theater actresses she's incredibly beautiful and a spectacular actress and she was so good on single guy totally unappreciated and she was married to Mark Moses 
who has gone on to do lots of things, primarily Mad Men, that people know him for, but another great actor, both in in movies and TV and, and on the stage. And that was the whole original cast. And then the people we added were good, but but it was a mistake to add them. Hmm. You know, so... Um, that, there you go. But that's 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 how that's how it works in network. You know, my yeah. wife's first show was called Day by Day, and Day by Day was a show about a daycare center. Right? That's what it was about. It was about a couple who have a daycare center in their home. That's the whole premise. So they they start a daycare center in their house because they have a little kid and they want to be with their kid as much as they can. So they start a daycare center in their house, based on a real person. The network note for the second year is. Lose the daycare. Show. Yes, yes. And so they did, and they, and they did. did the show without the day. So you know, this reminds me of because you actually have a, a, a similar story, I think, with the show that. Um, well, we'll get to that in a second, and uh, I want to hear some music because you got that damn guitar sitting here. Oh, uh, yeah. But uh, Austin Winsberg has come in and, and talked to me. He, uh, at ridiculous age, like twenty five, got to run a show for ABC. Um, called uh, Jake in Progress, right? Oh, which yeah, yeah, yeah. the which lasted two seasons. The premise with uh, um, twenty four was very hot at the time, so they kind of put it in a, in a comedy. It was the uh, this uh, it was um, oh uh, John Stamos. It was a right. date with this woman. The twenty four hours of this date, and each episode was going to be a one, an hour, one hour the, uh, an hour of the <clears> evening, <throat> right? Um, which they shot the pilot for, which set up all the characters, which had, and the note from the network was, it's great. Just lose that whole clock thing. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> just make it yeah. about. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Because you had a similar yeah, experience. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, although the they were, I have, I have to say, they were very supportive of that part of it for the first year. Um, and they, you know, I wanted to put a clock on the screen. I mean, the premise was that you see 20 minutes. It was actually originally called 23 minutes and 11 seconds with Eleanor Riggs or something like that. And um, and it became Watching Ellie but uh, because they didn't know how long the shows would be. <laughs> <laughs> so, And believe me, network shows aren't, aren't 23 minutes. But um, but that was – the idea was was take the 20 funniest minutes of this girl's day. So whatever day it is, and, and and make it run in real time. This was pre, around the same. I think we started the same year the twenty four started. So it was the same idea, but in comedy. Um, and each each week did not line up. We weren't telling a you know a longer right. story. It was not just, a linear thing. It was, it was just, just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And boy, you talk about a cast that had an unbelievable. Cast, oh, really but, good, uh, right? Oh my god. But um, the second year of that, they. They they wanted it to become an audience show. It went from being a one camera show to being an audience show, and you know it was like really okay. So we made it an audience show, fine, and um, and we kept some of the. We tried to still tell very small stories. I mean, the idea really was I want to get inside this girl's head. How can what's the best way to really get to know somebody? Um, and Julie was fantastic. And the show had a lot of music, actually, too, because she played a singer. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so she would sing pretty much every episode. And actually, I think people discovered episode. she had a voice. Yeah, well, although, I remember you know, a lot of attention about, yeah, oh, yeah, not, she can sing. There wasn't enough. I was surprised. I and mean, the, 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 uh, the Oscar Castro Nevis, who's a great jazz guitarist, was our, our sort of music director. And, and he would arrange these uh, with a little bit of Latin kind of influence in him sometimes, but these fantastic jazz arrangements of a lot of standards but the way that a jazz singer would sing and they were really good oh my god and julia's very very good 
that's not the most popular kind of music. <laughs> right. <laughs> As it turns out, huh, maybe that was a mistake. But, you know, you don't do these things to be popular. No, of course not. But, no, that was a great experience and everybody that did it. And it, it had a great time. So, you know, sometimes shows are supposed to last two years. That was fine. To, yeah. to, it would have been great to do four, but it's, sometimes it's fine to do two. How, how, you know, so many frustrations come from putting so much effort into something that you care about. And right. then, then to see it have, I mean, you've had, you've hit some brick walls with some of these shows. Yeah. Not do to anything other than circumstances there's so many things that you can't control as a creative person as much right. as you like to i mean i think about how the fact that you guys went and started that practical theater company show as a direct result of we want to have control over what we do because we think we can do a good job right and you did and yeah. you could prove that yeah and everything else that comes with a certain level of success you answer to so many well, other yeah, people well yeah it's money you know i think that as soon as, as soon as things have potential to make a lot of money, then there's a lot of people that want to get involved, right. and then there's a lot of opinions. And, and you know, I, it's funny because that used to really drive me incredibly well, I was going to say, nuts. how do you keep creating when when you hit med- that so often? I meditate now. <laughs> do you? Uh, but, but I do. But the, I, I think you have to let go of that, and you have to try to just do your best. And I think that now – when I talk to younger people about show business, I, I'm very um, enthusiastic about it because I, I think that the breadth of opportunity is greater than it's ever been. I really believe that there's so many ways to have your stuff seen. Now, is it the same industry that it was when people made a billion dollars? No. Is that a good thing? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think that the fact that everybody's overpaid in show business is probably not great. Now, the people that aren't overpaid are the people that aren't working. So that's the crazy thing about show business. Everybody wants to be in it. 85% of the Screen Actors Guild is unemployed at any particular moment, and it's probably worse in the Writers Guild. So people want to do this, but do they want to do it because they want to make money? I don't think most people do. Well, and and if that's the goal, then that's you're probably not going to get to the point. Probably in the wrong business. Yeah. I mean, the thing with because I saw it coming out of film school where I was still having to wait for film to get developed and come back and go in, yeah. a, in an editing bay and chop it up and use splicing tape and all that stuff. The, as technology's gotten easier and more accessible, then obviously the amount of content that's out there is ridiculous and yeah. there are more places to put it and to be seen right but i think along with so that means there's a lot of crap yes <laughs> i mean there's yes. a whole lot of crap being yeah made. yeah and there's the worship of the amateur i right. mean there's nothing more frustrating for a young comic who's worked the, to kill himself to put something up on youtube that he thinks is hilarious and he gets seven thousand hits and then god that's fantastic until he looks at the cat throwing up they got nine <laughs> they got million, nine million and you're like maybe this isn't so great <laughs> but that aside it does seem like the difference now is that if something catches the audience, you know that people respond to it and that there is this immediately a little slightly more reliable than, say, Nielsen's yeah. um, reaction to something that's that's really good. Yeah. And there are YouTube shows that get bumped to network or that right. become these huge things that oh, happening to, more and more. Yeah. And, I, and I think that the the need for content um is a really great thing. Uh, exactly how that works as far as quality, and it, that's a tricky right. calculus, but it always has been so. Um, I, I think that the for, for people that really want to feel an audience response, 
there's never going to be anything like being in a room with an audience. If you're a stand-up comic or if you're an actor or if you're doing Shakespeare, it's nice to have the people laughing when you say those hilarious arcane jokes. <laughs> um, but but and it's I think there's a certain amount of frustration for musicians and actors and people that that that, that do this sort of thing now of having to put their own work out and just waiting to see if people. Right. And and, and it's, it's funny because I think particularly in music, there's a kind of. Um, self-promotion that's required now that has never been required before. And I think of a guy like James Taylor. If James Taylor was a young musician now, forget it. You would never hear a James Taylor song. That guy was not going to go in his fragile mental state as a sensitive singer-songwriter. The last thing in the world he was going to be good at was promoting himself. So he needed a structure. Right. He needed Paul McCartney and John Lennon to discover, oh, this guy is great, right. and put him on Apple Records. He needed that. So that kind of music and that kind of gentle creativity or that kind of gentle soul, whether it is that gentle soul creates uh, nirvana or creates whatever that right. gentle soul is creating, that's going to be missing. Well, that's interesting because uh, my son's going through that right now. He, yeah. he went to theater school at BU. He studied to be an actor. He he graduated, went out into the world, immediately hit that wall that all young actors typically hit, which is we already got a million of you. Um, so he went, okay, he's still doing improv. He's going to the UCB thing. He's got a, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, he's invited to be part of stage shows. He's saying yes to a lot of stuff and he turned to music. And right. so he wrote and has produced an album that he's about to put out. And I, I, I have that same feeling like, how are you going to put that out there and how is anyone going to hear it? Yeah. It, it, Cause he is that sensitive artistic type who hates self-promotion. One right. of the reasons why he's probably shying away from being an actor right now is that he doesn't have that in him to just be the hustler at the right. moment of his yeah. own visage of yeah. you know the it's the hard head. it's hard so i wonder but but i also see him being practical because he's of a new generation and he goes okay i need to find somebody who can brand me and i yeah. need to find somebody who understands how social media can can get it out there and put it out to the world. It's it's such a different it's like a way. Guy, of, a guy like that can synthesize interests. That's that's the other beautiful thing. Is like your son's interested in music and comedy, and he's an actor. And and guess what? You can kind of do all that more than I think you could maybe twenty years ago, um, because there's lots of opportunity to do it. Yeah. When, but when I've I've you know once in a while I'll go I'll go back to Northwestern and and work with kids or teach a class or talk to kids and and. Uh, a, a play that that Paul Ross and I wrote actually um, was produced at Northwestern a couple of years ago, and so we went back to to be available to to work with these kids um, who were it was a rock and roll musical actually, and the thing that was crazy was they were so busy doing so many things. They each kid that was in that show, and there was a lot of talent in the show. They were doing two or three other shows. Plus, they had a radio show. Plus, they were doing, you know, this community service thing. Plus, they had a full slate of classes at Northwestern. Plus this, plus that, plus that. And what turned out happening is that they didn't get very deep into any of it. Right. And they didn't take it. Paul and I just sort of sat there for a week. Nobody talked to us, basically. <laughs> and so we were, in the, we were in the audience, and they were having a discussion about a character in this rehearsal. And I kind of raised my hand. I said, excuse me. You know, you could ask the authors. <laughs> We're right here. You know, we can tell you right now what's going on. You could shortcut right to it. 
And but they kind of didn't think about that because they were so overprogrammed. Right. And and I think that you lose the depth, and that's the thing I worry about. That's you know we make the jokes about the cats on the on the internet, but it's what you were saying before is true. There's so much noise. There's so much shit that w- what do you do to break through that other than be the loudest? Right. And that's something that the also resonates that has a life beyond that uh, that one or two day viral sensation yeah, or whatever. What do you, well, how I, do you do that? It's a good question. If we knew, oh, we would. That's right. But I, I, but by the same token, you know, my kids are interested in the same thing. They're kind of interested in music and, and being funny and stuff. And the the ability to get your hands on the technology that's necessary both to create the material and to get it out there, that part's fantastic. Does it make them better at it? No. Yeah. Do you still have to do the same work to get good at it? Well, Yeah. And so that's still, yeah, yeah, still it's kind of the same in many ways, the same process. One thing that's interesting about all the stuff you've been talking about is that it it doesn't seem like maybe you were different at the time because you were younger or had more hubris or whatever. But it doesn't seem like anything that might have been considered a setback, like the frustration with SNL or any of that. You didn't seem to harbor anything negative out of that. Well, I mean, I probably did at the time. I, I, I try to move on, though, you know, and yeah. I, I this we were talking before about this commencement address that I gave. I went to a when I was a kid, um, I found out that if you were from California and didn't have any money and you played a sport, you could go to an Eastern prep school for a year. And <laughs> for my senior year, I, I left Santa Barbara High School and went to this fancy prep school called Williston, Northampton. I had a great year there. And um, and so they've I've stayed in touch with people there, and they invited me to come back and give a commencement address. And that's exactly what I talked about because I talked about failure, and what does that really? What does failure really mean? And everybody's you know you you get very high in yourself, and you think, oh, I'm just going to cruise through this, but everybody's going to suffer setbacks. And it's kind of how do you? And I do mean everybody, every anybody you can think of, no matter how charmed their life appears, has had some setbacks, or they're gonna. Well, I, I think honestly, that's been one of the most common themes in this podcast. To talk to anybody who's reached a level of success is your response to something that was totally fucked. Right? <laughs> and yeah. That's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of critical. It is critical, and I and I think you not that you're going to start enjoying. Setbacks, no. but I do think that if you think of them as opportunities to get better at what you're doing, or to become a better guy, you know, it's mm-hmm. like. And, and the the point that I was trying to make to these kids was because everybody's struggling in some way, or has had struggles, or will find struggles. If you're aware of that and you look around, it makes you a more sensitive person, and you're you're more likely to a more compassionate person. You're more likely to say, "Oh, I'm not alone in this." And I better reach out to that guy. So just kind of in your daily life, when you look around, when you're at the supermarket and you're in line and you're frustrated, um, well, maybe there's everybody's frustrated. And that's kind of a nice thing to to remember. It has nothing to do with show business <laughs> no, necessarily. Well. But it, but I think it's true. And I, and I, I think you – you know, if you get too sort of high and mighty, you can forget that. So. Well, I do. It may not have anything to do with show business. It'd be nice if people started out being good people before they were trying to be good at right. their jobs. You right. know, because yeah, exactly. they usually can enhance each other. Which yeah. leads me to, if you wouldn't mind. Um, oh yeah, the okay. That the, on that theme. Yeah, I mean, here you go. As long as we're there, and this is the additional message that you left these is, young, yeah, impressionable the, children with. I haven't played it since then. I hope I remember it. If I don't, we'll uh, we'll start over. Don't be an asshole. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a son of a bitch. Especially if you happen 
to get rich. Don't be an ass, asshole. Don't be a dirtbag, a slime ball, or weasel. Put your phone down once in a while. Say hello to people. It's the Beatle part. Don't be an asshole. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a son of a bitch. Especially if you happen to get rich. Don't be an ass, asshole. No, 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 asshole. Beautiful and a beautiful message. <laughs> a beautiful message. Um, that would be a great thing to go out on, but do you have anything else you could play us out on? That oh, you'd... God, I didn't think of that. No? Wait. This is the one song in your arsenal that you have uh, prepared? Well, I'd rather play a funny song, but I don't know if I have any with me. <laughs> I'll play. Uh, let's see if I can remember. Uh, it needs all kinds of harmony, but uh, I was going to play something from the um, from the world of the rock maze. Oh. Give me a little something. Um I'll <laughs> give you a piece of this. All right. When I get restless And I've been looking for some fun I want somebody But I don't want just anyone I want a baby But not just anyone will do I only make it with you if you're under 22 I don't want nothing else in the whole wide world. Just gimme, gimme, gimme young boys and girls. Gimme young boys and girls. I get up early and I go walking on the beach. I'm with my buddies and they grab everything in reach. I got my surfboard, yeah, yeah, but I don't want to shoot no curl. I just want to make it with some young boy or girl. I don't want nothing else in the whole wide world. Gimme, gimme, gimme young boys and girls Gimme young boys and girls Come and be my sweet young juvenile You're so beautiful I just cannot wait to be with you Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh In my woody, I know you'll say goody Goody young boys And then there's more. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that the dark was, side uh, the of dark Brad side. Hall would come out in such a we were very delightful ahead of ditty? Our times. We were one of the very few bisexual rock and roll songs I can think of. Actually, and sort of perverse at the same time. Sort of perverse. Thank God that it was 22 and not any younger. Well, we were 22 when we wrote that. Okay, so all right. That was think, well, maybe was the context would have been good to put up front, Brad. <laughs> People started <laughs> tuning out in disgust. My child is 22. Oh, God, I can't God. imagine now. This, no. is, this is a memory. This, uh, <laughs> all that. Um, any, what? what uh, anything that we can expect from you soon? You're working all the time. You can have continued. Uh, yeah, we'll see what will be seen. Um, you know, I write pilots and things, so you never know if they get picked up. Right. So, Are you uh, always working? Uh, yeah, I pretty much am always working. There is one thing I can plug, actually. Um, which is not – it's not funny particularly. But there, there's, uh, there's something that um, my wife and I uh, did. I, I made a documentary called Generosity of I. 
and you can find it at generosityofi.com. And it's an art documentary and because it turns out that Julia's – you know, the, <laughs> there's this horrible rumor that Julia's of some kind of billionaire heiress. This is not true. And uh, believe me, I certainly from? wish it was true. Well, it's all, that it Sein- it's all that Seinfeld money, right? It's which, just- which she also has none of. Yeah. She doesn't own no, Seinfeld. No, there's, so. there's a giant truck that pulls up once yeah. a week and just dumps well, giant this, bags of dough on I'd it. I'd like to make two things clear. One, Julia's dad is not a billionaire. Two, she doesn't make a cent from Seinfeld. <laughs> but there you go. People think she owns the show. I know. But, um, but she doesn't. Anyway, but her father is a great guy, and he's not broke. Um, <laughs> and he's always had this interest in art. And since he was way before he had a dime, um, he was started collecting art and has a real interest in outsider art and all this different kind of art. And Julie and I knew this. Um, but when he retired, he started to kind of get – he's a Frenchman and he started to bring his art over from France and, and from various places that he – barns and things where it had been stored because he's kind of a nut and he bought it – really bought a lot of art. So he got it all together and he put it in a warehouse in, in Westchester, New York. He brought some art types in to look at it and turns out, holy crap, this is not bullshit. This is a real art collection. It's got some famous people, but it's also got some not so famous people that should be um, famous. So he, when he found out that it's worth some real significant money, boom, that day practically he gave it to the Harlem Children's Zone. Oh, man. So in effect what he's done is taken this love of art that he has and this beautiful art that these most of them are living artists um, have created – and he's turned it into education for African-American kids. So it's kind of a miracle of a story. So we, we made a documentary about it, and it's, it's called uh, Generosity of I, and that's available at generosityvine.com. Beautiful. Uh, so that's, that's, that's something that people can see right now. Excellent. And then, um, you know, and I'm writing movies and TV and stuff, and keep your eye out, and there, there it goes. Well, uh, you have been very generous with your time. Look at that. That's that's a that's a trained professional oh, there in go. broadcasting right there. <laughs> what I did there. Yeah. But I like uh, the way you turned that around that phrase. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but Brad, this has been awesome. Thank you. And uh I, I look forward to seeing more stuff and I can't wait to see the next band gig. Yeah, come on out. Come on out, Larry. See uh, Riff Master of the Rockman Foundation singing about young boys and girls. And uh, all the Stark Monkey best to Julia, who is amazing, and Thank you continue very success I'll, on that, I will pass that amazing along. show. And, oh, yeah, uh, it's nice. They're moving here, you know. They're moving to Los Angeles. I, how are they going to do that? Well, West Wing did seven years here. So. Well, I guess so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right, Brad, you're the man. Thank you. All right, thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Get a monkey. Get a monkey! Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey.